I often hear it debated in the Bahamas whether or not this country is a Christian nation. Have you been a part of that debate with anyone? Have you been privy to a conversation that went something like this? The Bahamas is a Christian nation. Well, why do you say that? Because I don't think so. I, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm, you've heard the discussions. Some people believe this is a Christian nation. And there are others that look at the environment and the crime and, and all of the things that are maybe not as we wish them to be. And we say, no, it's not a Christian nation. Well, I'm not here to resuscitate that debate. But I do think it is relevant. And I do think it cannot be disputed that the Bahamas is a Christian-minded country. We can debate whether we are a Christian nation, but I do not think we can debate that we are a Christian-minded congregation. What do I mean by that? I mean that God is on the minds of the average Bahamian. God is seared into the conscience of the average Bahamian. You can't even say goodbye to the average Bahamian. See you later. God spare life. I realize sometimes that can be flippant and routine and programmed, but it reveals nevertheless that God is on our mind. So when a storm like Hurricane Matthew comes along, Many of us are thinking about God. Where is God in this? He is sovereign. He commands the wind and the waves. What is God going to do with this? Why is God doing this? What will come of it? God is on the minds of the average Bahamian. Now, when Hurricane Matthew made its turn, as it was approaching Jamaica, you'll remember, it turned north towards us. And I had someone ask me to apply my theology. Bryn, you've got certain convictions about who God is and what God is like. This hurricane is clearly headed in our direction. Tell me how you apply your theology in this situation. And I said something like this. If the hurricane misses us, if it takes a, a sudden turn to the east and misses our entire country, this does not mean that we were spared because we are a good nation. Because I've heard the talk in other years. Oh, we've, we haven't had a major hurricane since 1960-something, 65. And the reason that I've often heard is because we're such a Christian country. We're such a God-fearing country that these storms just keep missing. And I said, no. If Hurricane Matthew misses us, it's not because we're good. But if Hurricane Matthew hits us dead on and devastates us, it doesn't mean we're bad. And I think we've got this skewed perspective, and I don't know where it's come from, where if the storm hits us, we're bad, and if the storm doesn't hit us, it means we're good. If it devastates us, it means God's angry, and if it misses us, it means He's pleased. It 
doesn't mean that at all. We know this because of the clear teaching of Jesus Christ, who said very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, and you know this verse, My Father makes the sunrise on the evil and on the good, and He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Every nation on earth is a mixture of people who reject God and who love God. And so these natural disasters or these devastations ought not to be taken or seen as punishment or reward according to our behavior. We need to shed a worldview that sees everything through the lens of rewards and punishments. We need to shed the worldview that sees everything through the lens of rewards and punishments. And where that is getting traction in our day is through the rise of the Eastern religions. And we've talked about this earlier in the series. It is very popular to talk about karma nowadays. Karma, uh, the crude definition is it's the, the power in the universe that course corrects and meets out justice. Karma is the thing that gets everyone what they deserve. The Bible teaches a very, very different message than karma. Bryn McPhail does not get what he deserves because Jesus Christ got what he didn't deserve. You see, the whole gospel says that what I deserved fell on Jesus. And what Jesus deserved fell on me. It's, it's like the opposite of karma. The Christian gospel says that God meets out grace where punishment would have been just. He pours out mercy in times where judgment and wrath would have been appropriate. We have to shed this view that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. We have to lose that view. And I can say that in a church because it's not just the non-Christians holding to that, but it's the Christians. The Bible gives us a very different picture. Job gives us a very different picture. Job is a picture of a good man who suffered terribly. And here in chapter 21, he talks about bad men prospering. We know from the Bible, time and time again, good people suffer and bad people prosper. And that's not even a formula. Sometimes bad people suffer and sometimes good people prosper. But it's not a formula. It's not karma. We don't always get what we deserve. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. The companions of Job had the view that you get what you deserve. And so when they saw Job suffering the way he did, they were certain he must be harboring some secret sin. There must be something. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they didn't know what the sin was, but they were sure Job was harboring sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't suffer the way he did. 
And you read through the the middle section of Job, and Job defends himself. Job defends himself saying, no, I'm not harboring sin. I'm not unrighteous. I've not done these bad things that you're intimating I've done. And then I think Job grows weary of defending himself. And so I give Job a lot of credit for how he changes the debate. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar said, just tell us what you've done and repent. Confess your sin and turn from it. Put it away and God will make things right. And Job wearies of defending himself so he changes course. This is what he does. If good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people, Job puts forward the argument, why do so many bad people prosper? Job turns their argument around. They're saying bad, uh, bad people experience bad things. And Job says, no, you know lots of examples where bad people prosper. If you doubt that, you can open your Bibles to Job chapter 21. And we'll just scroll through some of these verses. Job asks in chapter 21, verse 7, he asks the question, Why do the wicked live? Why do they reach old age? And why do they grow in power? Then Job goes and he lists off all of the good things that ungodly people experience. In verse 8 he says, the ungodly have their offspring established. So I think we know that in any given household, some couples are unable to have children, some are only able to have one or maybe two, and others seem to have as many children as they want. And in those days, and in most ages, children are seen as a great blessing. And so Job says, well, the the ungodly seem to be able to have all the offspring they want. And in verse 9 he says, the ungodly... They have all their houses are safe. And then I think most of us pause and say, houses, is that in a plural? Yes. Ungodly with multiple properties and multiple homes. Verse 10, Job says their bulls breed without fail. Well, I don't know any of you own any bulls or or cows or anything of the sort. So uh, what that would be a metaphor for us is the ungodly seem to turn a great profit with their business. The ungodly seem to succeed with all their business ventures and all their investments. Verse 10. And then in verse 11, Job says, uh, the ungodly, their children dance. Their children dance. I read that and and I just think, well, that must be a contrast to those whose children have to work. Those whose children don't have time to sing and dance because they're busy doing chores and supporting the management of their household. But not with the ungodly. Their offsprings established. Their multiple houses are safe. Their bulls are breeding without difficulty. They're making lots of money. And the children don't have to do a lot. They get to dance. Then Job says, "Well, now you want to know their theology? You want to know what they're saying? They say about God, depart from us. Verse 14, depart from us, we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. This is the ungodly talking to God. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit, what good is it if we pray to Him? 
Friends, could you find someone like that today? Could you find someone who in there either consciously or subconsciously says, God, he can, he can beat it, he can scram. I don't want anything to do with God. Do you know someone who would say, pray? What good is it if I pray? What benefit will come if I pray? Do we know individuals like that? Because what we're dealing here in the ancient text are questions and comments and perspectives that have been consistent throughout the ages. It's relevant for us to ask today what was being asked or implied centuries ago. What benefit do we get from our devotion to God? I'm so delighted that that you're here today. And it's a smaller crowd. I don't want to pick on those who aren't here because there are good reasons to miss corporate worship. But I think every day when it's a choice to pray, when it's a choice to read our Bible, when it's a choice to worship, when it's a choice to fellowship with Christians, what we do is we weigh the benefits. I need to get this thing done. I need to get this task complete. But I should also worship the Lord Jesus Christ and pray to Him and learn about Him and worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Every day you are challenged to weigh the benefits. Do I do this or do I do that? Do I engage in commerce or do I worship? Do I check off the to-dos on my list or do I pray? What benefit do we gain from our devotion to God? If the wicked prosper and they're not even paying attention to Him, and if the righteous and the godly are suffering, well, why would that motivate us to be righteous? If I can can prosper like the ungodly person, what's the big deal if I cut a few corners, I miss a few Sunday services, I miss a few Bible studies, I cut short my prayer time, what will be the big deal? Or simply put, I think we ask this question. Is it worth it? Is God worth it? Is worship worth it? Is is the singing, is the praising worth it? Is the praying worth it? Is the attention to scripture worth it? Is the gathering together on Sunday morning and midweek Bible study, is it worth it? Is the giving of our resources, our time, our money, our energy, is it worth it? You can be forgiven if you've asked the question. If you've asked the question, even if it's been subconscious, You are in good company because many in the scriptures have asked, is it worth it? If you were to study the book of Jeremiah, for example, you'd come to chapter 12 and in the very first verse, Jeremiah lists out some complaints to God. He's bellyaching as God's prophet and this is what he says. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? Then we also heard Psalm 73 read. And we have a confession or an admission from Asaph. He says, and and it may ring familiar to us. He says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Asaph is bothered by how easy the life of the rich and famous is. Observing this, Asaph wonders if he is wasting his time. If you look at verse 13 of the 73rd Psalm, Asaph says, In vain I have kept my heart clean, and in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Has that ever been your perspective? Have you ever thought, why do I go to church all the time if all these bad things still happen to me? Why do I pray all the time if if all these terrible things happen to me? Why do I read my Bible so much if all these bad things happen to me? You're back in the reward-punishment worldview. You're thinking good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. It's a perspective we must shed. Job, Jeremiah, and Asaph have essentially observed the same thing about the world around us, and they have asked the same question. They're asking, is it worth the effort? Is it worth the effort to try and live a godly life, or is it worth the effort to live a holy life? Have you ever asked that question? You probably have. Because I think we would all admit and we would all say that to lead a godly life, to lead a holy life, is really demanding. It requires serious effort on our part. Being Christ-like is not something we come by easily. Yes, the Holy Spirit helps us. Yes, the Holy Comforter assists us to obey God's command. But nevertheless, serious human effort is required if we're going to grow in godliness. If we're going to curb our affections towards things that are unhealthy, and if we're going to increase our affections for the things that please God, We need serious, sustained, intentional effort. Think of all the things required of you as a Christian. To always give an honest answer. To always give a kind answer. To always put other people and their needs above your own needs. To lead a sexually moral life. To always resist stealing and to always resist manipulating and taking advantage of other people. These things require serious effort. And then we see unkind, dishonest, self-centered, sexually immoral, greedy people thriving. And we wonder, we wonder, God, are you, are you seeing this? We're trying so hard to pursue Christ. They've rejected you. It's going so well for them and so badly for us. Will you intervene? Are you going to intervene in some uh, judicial way? Are you going to make things right? And so we wonder... Is godliness worth all the fuss? 
We devote ourselves to being Christ-like, but we still get sick. We devote ourselves to growing in holiness, but a loved one still dies. We want to be more Christ-like, and Hurricane Matthew still hits your home. Is godliness worth the effort? Yes, it is. Of course it is. I can't say enough. It's worth every bit of strain and sacrifice. And Job finds this out. I don't want us to lead to the end of the book just yet. We're only halfway through. But Job learns in the end that it's worth it. All the terrible things he's endured and all that he's learned in his new relationship with God, it was worth it. I also am pleased to report that Asaph in Psalm 73 learned that it was worth it. Uh, You might want to turn to Psalm 73. I don't recall how many or any slides I made from the psalm. Uh, But in verse 13, Asaph says, In vain... I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. So Asaph's essentially saying, I think I've been wasting my time. I think this whole holiness pursuit and and godliness pursuit, I think it's been a colossal waste of time. Then verse 16. When I thought how to understand this, that is, when I thought to make sense of why the ungodly prosper... It seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph appears to be despairing whether he'll ever be able to understand if the pursuit of godliness will be worth it. If your Bibles are open, verse 17. Until, until I thought I was wasting my time. I thought it wasn't worth the effort until, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. Well, what is their end? What is the end of the ungodly? If you want one of the most graphic descriptions of what happens to those who do not know Jesus Christ, you read Matthew chapter 25. Sometimes people think, well, the Old Testament, it's the terrifying God, and in the New Testament, you have meek and mild, gentle Jesus. No. In the New Testament, you have Jesus painting a graphic, horrible image of the end times. Matthew chapter 25. There is a separation of the sheep and the goats. There is a final judgment. There is a final making things right. And it's Jesus that we learn these things from. Ultimate judgment will be rendered. And the idea here as we sew all these different scriptures together is this. Do you see the wicked prosper today? Of course you do. Do you see godless people doing really well in society? Of course you do. What the Bible tells us, it may be this way through their whole life until final judgment. The godless may have an easy go of it their whole life. But when you read Matthew 25, it's not worth it. 
their ungodly life is not worth it. The ungodly may have an easy go during this earthly life, but they will not enjoy a shred of ease in eternity. Let's keep reading in Psalm 73, because I don't simply want to frame this, that well, we go after God because we don't want the punishments outlined in Matthew 25. I don't want your love for God to be based on the fact that you're scared of the punishment He'll render in final judgment. I don't think that's a good enough motivation. It's a compelling one. It's a very compelling one, but I don't want it to be your only motivation. Because if you look at Psalm 73, Asaph talks about pursuing God for the benefit of enjoying God. And this is huge. Because this is what I've seen in Canada, in the Bahamas, in the U.S., everywhere. We worship God because what He can give us. We worship God because He'll give us heaven. We worship God because He'll give us ultimate happiness. We worship God because He'll give us some level of prosperity. No, let's worship God for who He is. And that's what Asaph discovers. It's not worship because God can do stuff for you and advance you and make you more prosperous. But Asaph enjoys God. The language is beautiful. I want to read some of the verses. We didn't read these earlier. It's Psalm 73, verses 25 to the end. Asaph asked the question, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I can tell you clearly from Scripture's revelation, the ungodly never ultimately prosper. Those who have rejected God will never ultimately prosper. I hope you can see that. The ungodly may have millions and they may have mansions. The ungodly may be revered and they may be respected. They may be popular and they may be powerful. But the ungodly lack the very best thing in the universe. They lack God Himself. The greatest thing that God can give you is Himself. And those who reject God are missing the best. Listen again to Asaph. He says, there is nothing on earth. That is, there's no possession I could own. There's no person I could love. There's nothing on earth that I desire above you. It's not that Asaph didn't love people. He didn't have friends or family or things that were precious to him. 
It's just when he compared them to the value of a relationship with God, it was no contest. There is nothing on earth that I desire above you. And then when Asaph says that God is his portion, I mean, I know portion means different things in our day, but I think in the day in which Asaph was writing, a portion is the amount of food that is required to satisfy a person. So it's dinner time, and you don't get a feast. It's not an all-you-can-eat banquet in those days, but you get a portion of food. You get just enough to satisfy you, to fill you up. And so when Asaph says, God is my portion, he's saying, God is enough. He doesn't have to give me all that other stuff. If he does, it's wonderful, but it's like an all-you-can-eat buffet. It's more than I need. To be fully satisfied, to be full, to have a portion, all I need is Him. And this is one of the lingering questions in the book of Job. It's the test, if you will. When everything is taken away from you, your children are taken away from you, your worldly possessions are taken away from you, will you stand and say, God is enough? Will you say, I am satisfied without these people and without these things. I hope this is your experience. I hope you share this, but I would say suffering drives us into the arms of God in a way that prosperity never can. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not in a hurry to suffer. I'm glad all the trees seem to miss a lot of our houses and roofs. We don't invite suffering. We're not eager for it. We'd be happy to prosper a little more. We'd be happy to make a little more and be a little more secure. But I think we'd have to admit, when we look back over the course of our life, suffering drives us into the arms of God in a way that prosperity never can. One of my favorite examples of this is a psalm that you all know. Psalm 23. And as I talk about Psalm 23, I'm giving you a moment to bring the verses to your mind. Do you remember the way that, God, that David talks about God early in the psalm? He says, he leads me here. He makes me lie down here. Uh, he leads me here. It's he does this. He does that. He does this. He does that. He's talking about God. But when David's in trouble, there is a switch. He says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Do you see the transition? When things are going well for David, he talks about God. And when things are going poorly, he talks about God. To God. I don't want us to be a congregation that simply talks about God. We come on Sunday morning and we talk about God. We gather for midweek Bible study and we talk about God. I want us to be a people that talks to God. Dear friends, the ungodly prosper only superficially. And only for a season. The Christian's prosperity 
is deeply satisfying. And it's forever. It's eternal. But this experience, this level of satisfaction, it's not automatic. There's something for you to do. You must resolve in your life and in your daily habits to pursue God. To choose Him over other things. As Asaph declares, I have made the Lord God my refuge. There's an intentionality there. He did did not necessarily wait for God, but he went after God. I made the Lord God my refuge. So I ask you this morning, have you made God your refuge? Or are you just sitting back waiting and hoping that God will continue to be good to you? Or are you going after Him? Are you pursuing Christ in a manner that suggests that nothing else can satisfy your soul? Would people look at your life and say, Jesus Christ is their first priority? Or would they look at you and say, well, no, business is more important. Family is more important. The condition of their house is more important. When others look at you, what do they see? Do they see an individual pursuing Jesus Christ? Because it's the pursuit of Christ that satisfies the human soul. Friends, I want you to taste and see that the Lord is good. I want you to taste and see that the Lord is enough. He's enough for you. He's enough for me. He's more than enough. Thanks be to God. Amen.